The Matthew Green Podcast, reframing mental health with me, Matthew Green. What if the problems of the modern world aren't really about power, money, war or religion? What if they're rooted in our individual and collective experience of trauma? I'm on a mission to explore how a deeper understanding of trauma can not only help us to feel better, but point the way to solutions to the challenges threatening our very survival as a species. I've spent years experimenting with alternative approaches to mental health to help with my own periods of depression. And I launched the Matthew Green podcast to bring together the pioneering healers, visionaries, thinkers, and activists I encountered along the way. Through a unique and accessible series of global conversations, I hope this podcast will be a source of inspiration for anyone in search of a deeper understanding of themselves and a clearer view of what's really going on on the global stage. I'm delighted to welcome Angèle Wallace, a child psychotherapist working with children and parents who has a particular focus on trauma and is joining us from her home in Southern England. Angèle was born and brought up in the Democratic Republic of Congo, then lived and worked for many years in East, West and North Africa, supporting children to recover from trauma. Angèle moved to the UK in 2006, where she deepened her work by training as a child psychotherapist. And in more recent years, she's been working to support other mental health professionals in Africa, including those working with children in Northeast Nigeria who were abducted by Boko Haram militants. Angel plays this remarkable role as a bridge between cultures. And we're going to be talking about culture shapes our experience of trauma and how we can use those insights to help us heal at both the personal and collective level. Angel, it's great to have you. Welcome. Thank you, Matt. I'm delighted to be here. What a brilliant <laughs> opportunity. Yeah, well, it's great. It's great to have you and to hear your voice. It, it reminds me of we met in Africa, in Kenya, wasn't it? In Nairobi many years back. It yes. seems like a lifetime ago, <laughs> certainly for me, a long time since I was running around in East Africa. Um, and we obviously caught up more recently because we were going to talk about your exciting plans to set up a conference on mental health and, and childhood trauma in Nairobi, Kenya. But I guess that has been postponed a little by the COVID pandemic. Yes, very much so. Um, it just felt that um, with COVID is not the right time, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen anymore. It just means that um, I've put it on hold maybe for this year, next year, and it certainly is an idea that would be revisited in the few years to come because I think it's a very important subject and it would be great to bring as many actors you know on the African continent as possible to come together and really engage thoroughly engage with um, the question or the issue of trauma and especially mental health services for children. Yeah well, well I was so excited to hear about that plan because you are I think in such a unique position to play this role uh, and we're going to be talking during the show about first of all your own experience of trauma and and your own journey through understanding what was happening to you and I, I mean I've in a very different way been through my own journey with depression and traced the roots of that to, 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 to trauma but you went on a very different journey which I think 
is incredibly revelatory about both how culture shapes our understanding of ourselves, how that can be in some ways a limiting factor, but at the same time can open up so much when we start to unpack it in the way that you did. Because not only did you, you have your own experience of, 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 of working through trauma, but you had this, this blend of cultures. You grew up, of course, in Democratic Republic of Congo in the Mobutu era, which in itself must have been a pretty extraordinary time. <laughs> Very much so. And you went on a journey as a psychotherapist training in the UK, following the Jungian route, certainly yeah. at first, yeah. and then fusing together that kind of cultural background with the very kind of Western paradigm, and then taking that blend back to Africa to support mental health professionals working with some of, the, some, some of these kids who are escaping from Boko Haram, have been, been through the most horrific experiences you can imagine. Um, and there's such a need for that kind of work. And I hope that after we've, we've kind of unpacked some of that, we'll be able to speak a, a little bit as well to what we're seeing around us right now, the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, the focus on racial justice and decolonization. And I'd love to hear more about your perspective on that. I think you've got a really unique way of thinking and talking about these issues so it's really exciting to have you back so Angel why don't we start by, by you telling me a bit about your own story so you were you were born in in this I mean it's almost like a, a it almost feels like a mythical time now Mobutu's Congo I mean this was almost an archetypal African dictator who was in power for decades uh, you were you were born at that time brought up at that time and there to witness the demise of the regime um, <laughs> And, and at the same time, you have this remarkable family story that was unfolding against that dramatic backdrop. I wonder if you could tell me a little, about, a little bit about your own journey and, and how, how you came to realize that, that maybe you, there, was, there was work you needed to do on, on yourself to, to help yourself get through that. Absolutely. Um, well, my trauma started in childhood, like for many of us. I was born in the shadow of a dead child. Uh, my parents had lost two children and the second child um, died just before I was born or as soon after I was born. I've never really been able to establish that because of, you know, there's always a sense that it's a, it's a traumatic topic in itself, you know, for, for, my, for my, my, my mother, my parent at the time. But yes, so that was when the journey began. And of course, you know, my parents had been very traumatized by their experiences of loss. And they themselves had been heavily tra traumatized as children and um, had not been able to digest their own trauma. And within all that uh, was, well, they, they grew up or I was born and was growing up in the backdrop of Mobutu's dictatorship. You know, which was one of um, one very brutal dictatorship. I mean, as far as dictatorship go, they all are brutal, as far as I know. But Mobutu's one was particularly brutal. And um, I'd like to compare it to the idea of um, having. So, if you think about the state as a brutal parent, mm. and who brutalize the children, and children are likely to be traumatized and continue to perpetrate, you know, that trauma. So that's very much the system, you know, that I grew up in. So you had the state that was very brutal, which, you know, individual internalized it. And of course, you know, I'm not even talking about colonization because that also in itself in the Congo was very brutal. 
but just staying with the state. So internalized, you know, the brutality being internalized by individuals. And of course, that's what you had in the home environment. So for me, my home environment was very traumatic, you know, in the sense that my parents, they themselves being traumatized, very stressed a lot of the time, didn't have much patience, you know, for anything. And of course, you know, a lot of that was, um, uh, well, I had a, an, a sort of, I had a, um, uh, my experience with them was very much, you know, that uh, was very much the stress that, you know, they conveyed, you know, through the way that they parented, parented us. And that was very much, but that also wasn't just at home, but it was also in the school, you know, where, you know, in the school, um, teachers, because they did not know better, and the system was what it was, um, children were essentially what we would describe today, you know, as, you know, emotionally abused. And wow. uh, corporal punishment was very much part of it. So you had it, you know, both at home and at school. And every single day, I mean, for a child, that's pretty, you know, pretty tough, you know, to, um, to really um, experience, you know, on a regular basis. Um, so that was very much the environment within which I grew up. And um, I didn't know at the time that I was traumatized because that's just what I knew, you know, as a child. And it wasn't until um, I became an adult and Mobutu's um, regime collapsed. So I was in my mid twenties, you know, at the time. And it also happened to be the time where I was having my first child. And that's for me, I think is where it really crystallized that I wanted to understand what had gone wrong with my parent. Put simply, the question for me was, it's not possible to carry a child for nine months and not love them. Mm. And that the journey, you know, the journey for me, you know, that's when the journey began for me, of really wanting to understand, you know, what had happened. And of course, you know, with Laurent Kabila arriving in the country and the political upheaval that that had brought. He, he, he was the rebel leader, Laurent Kabila, who, right. who led this army of, child soldiers effectively Absolutely. to overthrow Mobutu. Yeah, the yeah. Kadogos, yeah. yeah. The Kadogos, indeed, indeed, and they arrive in Kinshasa. So at the time, um, I was also in a position to leave the country because uh, Rosa, my baby, um, her, her father, um, being half American, was able to leave with his family uh, on the American charter flight who was evacuating their um, uh, ressortissant, that's the word that come in French, but they're citizens, that's it, citizens, so they're citizens in the Congo. So I left at the time, but there was also a huge sense of guilt that I carried with me, that I was able to leave at that particular moment, not knowing what would happen to my family, but also uh, to friends and also whether I would ever be able to return to the country. So that was one very significant loss for me um, that by the time I arrived in the UK I felt very very depressed um, partly because of you know sort of you know we might call it the baby blues but I think for me it was really deeper than that um, it was a it was traumatic in itself just leaving the country and at the time I remember I had a friend uh, who was also in Chester with us who happened to be the BBC French correspondent who had also returned to the UK and she was the one that was able to sort of flag up that perhaps I needed to see someone to help me 
sort of process a little bit of just that experience I'd just been through. How did you feel at, at that time? Are you able to, because you obviously speaking now partly with the benefit of decades of mm. personal work to make sense of it, but at the time you hadn't done any of that. How, what was the feeling that you were experiencing on those first weeks in suddenly having this complete shift from the country you knew and grew up in where you left the family, albeit with this very ambiguous feelings about that family, but nonetheless, you, you'd been ruptured. You'd seen child soldiers converging on the capital, turning, you turn up in kind of miserable England. I mean, there's a lot going on there ha, ha, with a child as well. How did you feel at, at that point? What was going on for you? That's a very good question, Matt. I mean, and, and, and you're right, you said, now I do have the language to talk about it. At the time, I couldn't tell you what I felt. I just felt this sense of, um, it was just heaviness. That's how I describe it. A huge heaviness that I did not know was called depression because I had never heard the word depression before. I had never heard the word trauma before. I mean, it trauma as a word doesn't exist, you know, in the, you know, in the Lingala language, you know, so. Or I therapist, right? <laughs> or therapist, or mental health, forget it, it doesn't exist. So I did not have the vocabulary to say to you, this is what I felt at the time. If you'd asked me this question then, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I was functioning, but deep inside, you know, I just felt this huge heaviness. And it took my friend, you know, who was from a different culture, who had heard of a therapist and who understood what they did to identify that, well, maybe you need to see somebody just to help you, you know, process this, whatever it may be. And that was my very first encounter with, you know, someone called a therapist. And I remember um, she very kindly, uh, my friend Marie, very kindly organized for me to have the meeting. And, um, and my experience was very much, you know, of sitting with a complete stranger. And I was supposed to tell her what I felt, but I didn't know what I felt. But the good thing was that she was, I think, you know, in hindsight, she was skilled. And she was able to put word to my sorrow at the time, which was the loss, that I lost, you know, everything that was familiar to me, and I was overwhelmed by the experience. Fortunately or unfortunately, it was a very brief experience because I was to be in the UK for a very short period of time because the itinerary at the time for us was to come back to the UK for a very brief period and then move to Nigeria. Which so, itself, uh, having lived in Nigeria, in Lagos, I can attest is not, the, not necessarily a recipe for stress, stress reduction. No, <laughs> not at all. But the good thing is at the time I did not know that. I, was, <laughs> I suppose in some way I was pleased. I was like, well, I'm going back to Africa. Yeah, yeah. Lagos, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love, much as I love Lagos, it can, it can give you a few grey hairs, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, uh, so... Yes, so that was my very first encounter with, uh, with therapy and with a therapist. And uh, in hindsight, it was a positive one. I don't think I made much sense of it at the time. I walked out of there with a word or two that, you know, a loss and, you know, feeling overwhelmed. And also at the time, remember, I didn't speak English at all. You know? Wow. So we had to find the therapist, you know, who could speak French. Um, 
so you know my friend Marie was very helpful to me in that sense and this therapist was also because she could speak French and was able to help me understand something of what was happening to me then we moved to Nigeria and in some way you know I I I just I'll, I'll put it in a very simple way. I just got on with it. Yeah, you, know? you coped. I coped. Here was in the new country. I had a little baby, and my little baby Rosa, you know, who is you know a young woman now, was <laughs> also provided for me. Was um, she provided, or she, I don't want to use the word outlet, but what it meant for me was I could begin to process something. Put simply, I was able to be, oh, unconsciously, I was thriving or I wanted to be the mother that I wish I'd had. So mm. in that sense, was already a healing process that had started. Mm. And, um, and, you know, with her father, I had this opportunity to create perhaps the ideal family that I felt I'd not had or to step away from the family that caused me so much distress and so much trauma to something completely different. So I think, you know, even without therapy, life experiences provide us with opportunity of healing. In, exactly, I was thinking as you were saying that, it's through relationship, isn't it? Absolutely. Healing of trauma is always through relationship and that can be with us, with the right sort of therapist or I've seen, we've talked in other episodes about healing with horses, equine therapy, or with animals, or even with a relationship. I mean, maybe we'll get onto this as we delve into the collective unconscious, but with transpersonal archetypal forces almost. And we'll come to that in the African context as well, shortly, I suspect. But, but yeah, it, it, you, you ha so you have this healing relationship that was supporting you, that you were starting to heal, and yet it wasn't all plain sailing, was it? Absolutely, not at all, it wasn't plain sailing. And um, I mean, obviously, you know, there was also, and I'll, I'll come to that, but so arrived, you know, we arrived in, uh, in, in Nigeria, but what had begun for me was also the curiosity to find out what had really happened in my relationship with my parent, what was happening in my relationship to my daughter and my then husband, and also what was happening between me in terms of my identity, I'm now, you know, I'm Congolese, I'm now in a Nigerian, sort of, you know, in a completely similar but different culture. Yeah, and, that, and that's something, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, within Africa, <laughs> there's a lot of politics, to, to put it politely, right? I mean, that main, there would have been issues that arose as a result of your Congolese identity in Nigeria, right? Yes, yes. And uh, issues that would have been completely different and some that would have been really similar. One of them, which really struck me, was also a use, um, a witchcraft and the use yeah. of it, which was very, in many ways, very similar, you know, to my, to my own culture in, 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 in the Congo. Um, but there were also other similar, you know, sort of aspects of the culture, which is that, you know, Nigeria remains, you know, a collective culture in the same as, you know, the Congolese culture. So although there were issues where I thought, oh, you know, how do I relate to this? I was largely also at home within mm. that because it was in many ways quite similar to mine. So 
the, the need to understand, you know, sort of about the relationship, my past and at the time present relationship, but also, you know, similarities in both culture really triggered, you know, sort of, um, or needed, you know, I, I needed in relation to that to uh, find out, you know, sort of how do I make sense of all that? And that led me to um, uh, register or enroll on a course with uh, the equivalent of, in France of um, the Open University in England. So in France, it's called the CNED. But basically what it does, it offers uh, long distance learning. And um, I don't know how I came across it, but somehow I, it, it happened or that I could, that there was something called psychoanalysis. Oh, I know how it happened is because I had therapy, you know, therapy in London which you know had stayed with me or that one session i mean it wasn't even therapy it was one session with a therapist you know and it was just one session that you had it in was london just that one session that wow I had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so something it did something to but it, me it planted one. a seed of some Absolutely. sort yeah it planted the seed and i really would like to come back to the idea of planting the seed because that's also very important in my work with children where i may work with them for a short period of time but i don't know how they end up, you know, sort of later on in life. But I like to think of my role as, as planting a seed, you know, that, you know, a child can come back to and, you know, sort of explore further. But anyway, back to, to myself and, and in Nigeria. So the curiosity about psychoanalysis, you know, uh, and whether it could help me understand more about the witchcraft, you know, issues um, or, you know, aspect of my culture, but also the relationship that um, my past and present relationship. And that's how I, um, I came to the teaching of um, Freud and psychoanalysis. And the course that I, I took was um, an introduction to psychoanalysis and uh, Freud's theory of, um, of the unconscious. It was very helpful, but I also felt that there was something that it didn't quite answer for me, especially in terms of why is this witchcraft so powerful? Well, this, this is work? What, what, what I'd love you to, 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 to elaborate a little bit further on what, when you say witchcraft, what do you, what, what do you mean by witchcraft? And, and what role yes. did it play in your own childhood? Because it feels like there's a personal and collective issue yes. here that comes together. And, and it's almost a delicate topic, isn't it? Because when we, I mean, you say witchcraft very freely, but I almost yes. feel, wow, can I even say witchcraft? It sounds like I'm denigrating these kind of primitive people in Africa using witchcraft. And yet we know that, I mean, I've seen it myself in, when I went into Northern Uganda, writing about the Lord's Resistance Army, incredible power of the unseen and the, the, um, the role of a, a shaman almost, or a, a, a traditional healer um, was extraordinarily powerful. And, and there's, I, I mean, I, I'd love to hear, I mean, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. When I, I, I can look back at myself as a younger journalist. And frankly, I had inherited that kind of white colonial mentality of, oh, this is all manipulation and kind of trickery and poor naive people who were being led astray by these, these witch doctors. I don't think we're supposed to say witch doctor now, but that was the term that used to be used, right? But actually it was later in life that I actually realized that there might be a lot more going on meets the eye that we don't particularly in the west really understand very well so i i kind of learned a little humility i hope around that subject and i, I i'm just fascinated for you to explain 
Absolutely. For people like me, I mean, for, for that, certainly for my younger self, it's like witchcraft, what is this? What, what is witchcraft to you in Africa and, and what role did it play in your own life? That's a really good question and I'm so glad that you've asked it because I also realized that for me, the personal sort of connection with, with witchcraft, and I'm going yeah. to use that word. Yeah, well, it's your word, yeah. <laughs> It's how I call it. I mean, in some places it's called juju, uh, you know, in other places it's called black magic. But anyway, um, and in, in back home, you know, because, you know, Congo is French, it's big, the country we call it, la sorcellerie, you know, it's witchcraft, you know, that's how you translate it. So I'm quite, you know, sort of free with <laughs> how I use it, how I use the word. But my own um, history or, you know, sort of encounter with it was, um, I mentioned earlier that my parents had lost two children. And for both of them, the, or at least my parents had felt that the reason for death had never really been clear to them. And because they'd never really understood, you know, how is it that they lost these children and what had killed those children, they interpreted that it was some witchcraft work, that someone within their family or within their community wanted them harm. And in relation, you know, as a way to to deal with that, with that trauma, but also with um, this interpretation that they've given to the deaths of their children, they sought refuge in various in, um, religious sects because they felt so unsafe, they didn't know who to trust, and they were just very traumatized. And one of the impact of trauma is, you know, fear, you know, when we experience something traumatic, yeah, we, 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 we scared and we want, you know, to have some sense of control. And they felt that by going, you know, sort of away from um, sort of wanting to separate themselves, you know, from the collective, if you want, sort of not wanting to believe in this witchcraft that had caused them so much heartache, they chose a different, you know, way of dealing with it. So that was very much my own experience of it at least within the family. That is also something that was very much part of just the everyday experience. You know, you hear your neighbor talk about it. You know, you go to school and your friend will say, oh, don't, don't walk in that puddle because you know, that puddle, the water that's been thrown there has been, is bewitched. I was like, how is that the water's been bewitched? <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, you know, it's very much part of it. And it's never questioned. That's the interesting thing. And that also link with the collective unconscious that, Often it's not questioned. It is the way it is. You don't ask question about it. And I came to see that it's also because there is no question about it. It's not processed, that it remains very powerful. Well, I, I'm very curious about your relationship with this because again, we're, we're talking about it now as you are now. Mm. I mean, as a younger woman, did you believe in it? And, and I asked that question because I also want to know whether you still believe in it, because I, I wonder what, and I don't mean believe in it as in the sense of believe in something that isn't true. I mean, what is in this? Because there's something incredibly powerful. And I, I personally believe there must be something at work. I, I don't believe it's just purely sort of invented for the you know for the benefit of the the people who set themselves up as the 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 the, the, the um the kind of sorcerers if you like there's got to be something else going on and i don't know what that thing is so i i'm 
I'm curious to hear about your journey in understanding what it is that we're actually talking about here. Sure, sure. As a young woman or even as a child growing up, did I know what it was and did I believe in it? I don't know if I believed in it. What I know is that I was terrified of it. Wow. You know, I yeah. was terrified of it because my parents were terrified of it. People were terrified of it, you know, and it's often the case that if you can't see something and you don't understand how it works, it's only normal that you'll be terrified of it because you can't see it coming. So now as an, as, as an adult, you know, do I believe in it? I don't know that I do believe in it. However, I still am fascinating that, you know, there's still a huge majority of people that believe in it. And I still don't really know how it works. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, so it's, it's still a journey for me. Wow. And I'm still trying to understand, but does it really work? Does it not work? I chose to believe that it doesn't work, but that does not mean it doesn't work. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk maybe as we circle on to, to your work, as you return back to Africa, yeah. how that understanding and that those paradoxes play into your work, helping people now. Yeah. But I'm curious about, how your 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 journey continued into the western paradigm sure. because freud i mean now freud is almost i mean we we can recognize that he you know he he brought forward the concept of the collective unconsciousness or, or, or rather the unconscious, the unconscious um, yeah. and trauma and began to bring certain concepts forward that were very valuable in in western understanding and yet he also got a lot wrong so i'm curious about how you progressed from that initial start Absolutely. i imagine with a very french flavor to it you know the french love their psychoanalysis don't they so i'm curious about how that then progressed perhaps on a more anglo-saxon kind of course <laughs> sure, sure, absolutely so so we're now back in you know so we're returning to nigeria so um so then i i start this course and like i say there was something about the you know Freud theory of the unconscious that I felt just didn't really help me to understand this particular issue that you know I really wanted to understand you know the, the witchcraft issue it did help me understand a little bit in terms of relationship but um, again I was very much at the beginning of my journey you know of making sense of that so something else happened in my time in Nigeria um, which was not as interestingly not as traumatic as leaving my country but what it seemed to have done was to perhaps say, exhaust my already fragile coping mechanism at the time um, basically what happened is i went on holiday with um by then but then i had two children so i had rosa and sam was born and i think sam was might have been around perhaps eight months at the time I went to South Africa with the two of them to visit my mother who was there on holiday and there's just something about the way we related to each other that brought up so much for me perhaps also being a mother myself at that time it just reminded me of so much that had been traumatic in my relationship with my mother and my father I mean my father you know died many years you know um, ago but it, it brought it back um, and on, upon my return to Nigeria um, I, I just collapsed you know mm -hmm. so when I say by collapses my whole coping or psychological coping mechanism 
just crumbled. Um, I was very ill. I mean, I remember it started with, um, I was, I was hallucinating, yes. Um, but yes, I, I remember just being sort of having fit of, of, of anxiety and of massive fear. And, and I had to be rushed into hospital and I was sedated for, you know, for a whole week and was um, flown back to England with a doctor on, on board. And it was when I arrived in the UK, I was met by a um, psychiatric nurse in the hospital. And I mean, all, all this is part of, you know, sort of organized by also um, my then husband's work, you know, so yeah. I, I was allowed to be- You had some support, yeah. We had some support, yes. Yeah. So, and it's back in the UK that was, I was diagnosed with um, post-traumatic stress, stress disorder. Um, and the treatment that was offered was uh, talking therapy. And I had, but still with, at the time, still with the psychiatric nurse, I'd seen a psychiatric, psychiatrist who had um, assessed me and diagnosed me and um, was um, prescribed to continue some weekly session at the time with a psychiatric nurse. And that lasted for about six months. Um, I don't really know what I made of those sessions at the time. Again, we're talking some time ago, but again, because I didn't have the language, I couldn't quite make sense of what was going on for me at the time. But I remember the experience itself was very important, was very supportive. Um, and what I mean by the experience was just to know that there was someone that I could go to and either talk if I wanted to or not talk, but it was regular and that would help me understand perhaps something of what I was going through. To me, you know, really stayed with me. Again, it just added something else to the experience I had had previously with the one session that I had. Um, yeah, because coming back and forth between Africa and the UK, I mean, it wasn't so easy to, to no. quite difficult even in Britain to access the right therapy, but you, this was stretched over years when you were getting this little taste here and there. It's tiny. Uh, really <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, yes. And I also want to add perhaps at this point, the idea of resilience, you know, although my coping mechanism had collapsed, there was also a degree of resilience, you know, which meant that I can go from one of these episodes when I collapsed to the next and still be able to function until, you know, sort of it was time for me to sort of do a bit more. And yeah. usually the signal for me that I needed to do it a bit more was my fragile sort of coping me mechanism shattering again, which again mm -hmm. is a, it's a common response to trauma. Yeah. And, 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 and especially, you know, developmental trauma, because, you know, we're not talking here of a one single trauma. When you say developmental, childhood trauma. Childhood trauma, yeah. exactly, yes. So there has been an accumulation, you know, and, and the coping mechanism has managed to sort of develop to some degree, but then it gets to a place where it wasn't really, you know, I wasn't coping anymore and I needed to address that trauma in order to move forward. Put simply, you know, one needs to go back in order to jump forward. And I yeah. think that's essentially what I was doing without realizing that that's what I was doing at the time. So six months, you know, I had some session with a psychiatric nurse and um, then I got to a place where my functioning returned, you know, was sort of functioning well enough that we moved to Kenya. 
and in Kenya, I also, you know, and, and I have to also remind, you know, sort of myself that I was also in those places working, I mean, in Nigeria, I also work as a psychosocial worker, and I was able to do the same also in, uh, in Kenya. Uh, in Kenya, I worked, you know, with um, children who were traumatized um, and also who had been orphaned by HIV AIDS. So there was also something in those work experiences, you know, that I was also seeking to understand myself and heal myself, you know, yeah. level. Coming back to these supporting children as you were Absolutely. sort of your own, your own child, inner child was, Absolutely. was finding yeah. some healing as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I was very much identified, you know, with these children that, you know, I was working with. Mm. Um, yes, because on some level I was trying to, understand something about myself and the yeah. same thing continued in north africa when you that's right uh, yeah absolutely. that's right and from uh, from kenya but of course which is where you and i met yes that's right <laughs> nairobi yeah yes in nairobi then from i was in you know we lived in nairobi for about two years and then we moved to uh, to egypt and in egypt i worked with um uh, unaccompanied minors you know from southern sudan at the time there was the darfur war that was going on but also uh the war um the iraq war was also either still ongoing or just finished i can't quite remember chronologically which one was um came first and for me i think it was whilst working in egypt that it really crystallized for me that first i wanted to understand more about trauma and how it impacts us and how do we heal from traumatic experiences? But also, I came to understand that in order to help some of these children that I'm working with, I needed a more robust framework to understand, you know, why the system had shut down. Perhaps in the same way also to understand why my own system at different period had shut down completely or collapsed. You know, and that's really what led me to when coming back to the UK to train as a child psychotherapist. Um, and again, it was interesting because at that time I had not sort of put the dots together in terms of my own experience of, you know, sort of um, having it, a therapist sort of put, you know, name feelings to, for me and helping me sort of process something even you know um as small as it was at the time but it's more going through sort of the interview process that it really came together you know for me because in a way you hadn't i mean what i'm hearing is you hadn't necessarily you were you were you were clearly drawn to working with children you were working with trauma yeah. but you hadn't even necessarily realized that you were suffering from childhood trauma yourself or rather that that was a big part of it and absolutely it's amazing isn't it with hindsight it seems so obvious obviously yeah. to you seems so obvious but until it clicks it can be yeah. completely unconscious and absolutely. i had a similar experience because i in a different very different way but a sort of fractal version of that when i was approached about writing a book about war trauma mm. and i i mean i don't consider myself to really have suffered from war trauma in any way i mean i've i've been in conflict areas as a journalist but i didn't i wouldn't say that i'd suffered kind of trauma as a result of that but 
certainly a degree of stress, but not trauma, really. But it was only after I'd written my book, Aftershock, about military veterans and their families looking for new ways to heal from, from trauma that I realized it was actually more about my ancestors, my family, my grandfather, who was in the First World War, had a great uncle who was killed, um, actually executed by Nazis in, in, the sec in World War II. And what, that was something that was barely spoken about in my family, not because it was a taboo, but just because it never came up, right? And I think that actually I had an unconscious desire to kind of unpack that and process that on behalf of the family. And I only realized that several years after the book was published. <laughs> so yeah. it's incredible how it sort of suddenly kind of the light bulb comes on, but you can be completely in the dark until then. And you, but for years, and it can really shape your life. And it's only when kind of that connection is made that you're like, oh, that's why, that's why I took that handbrake turn in my career or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. so that's fascinating to me that this was sort of, this was only now at this point in the journey that you were starting yeah. to see that connection. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this is where you took a new, you, you, you came to a new paradigm in understanding that's right. theory yeah. as well. Tell me about that. Absolutely. By com well, I, I wanted to say by complete coincidence, <laughs> such thing as coincidence. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, so at this stage now we're back in the UK and, uh, you know, it's crystallized for me that I need, you know, a bit more of a robust, um, you know, framework to understand trauma. And um, I set out to look, you know, to look for courses. I want to be a counselor for children or I want to work with children, but how do I go about it? So I then turn up to a open evening at, you know, Birkbeck College because I read about their, one of their courses in counseling. And I was very lucky that the person I spoke to happened to be a um, child psychoanalytic psychotherapist. So I explained to her a bit about my journey and explained to her what I wanted to do. And, you know, and the, the most important thing was that I wanted to work with more depth, you know, with, uh, with children. And she was able then to guide me towards the Tavistock and at the time the B, the BP, the, the, um, the BAP at the time, which was um, the British um, Association for Psychotherapists, which is now called the British Psychotherapy Foundation. So that's where really the journey begins because then I call them and I say, well, this is what I want to do. And they say, okay, you know, I send my application and my application is quite an interesting process because I need to say, well, why do I want to train? That's the moment where I then begin to connect, you know, some of my previous experience to where I am at the time. So I have a telephone, a telephone call or telephone pre-interview in which the lady then say to me, right, we have two streams or two uh, training stream, you know, within the BAP. The, the psychoanalytic or the Jungian. And you might want to decide before the interview, which stream do you want to go in? Well, I had read a little bit of Freud, you know, I find it interesting, but it didn't really speak to me in the way that I needed it to. And then I wonder, well, what is Jung? I've never heard of him before. <laughs> I needed to do some research yeah. you know, before. Yeah. So I had about 10 days you know, <laughs> before my interview. And during that 10 days, we were meant you know, to go, or we'd gone um, on a you know, sort of family holiday reunion um, somewhere in, 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 uh, in, in, in Scotland. And perhaps at this point, you know, people might be wondering why in Scotland, you know, but it was just a location, you know. 
that uh, that was picked up. And and in the house, it was a beautiful house that um, that had been rented. And I walk into the house, and of course, it's raining. You know, and it's raining sort of horizontal rain, so there's nothing much to do outside. So there's a beautiful library, and um, there it was in front of me. I see uh, Jung's book, Memory, Dreams, and Reflection. I'm like, wow, so, <laughs> you know, the bookshelf. And for the week that I was in that house, I actually never left the house. I just read Memory, book, um, um, Memory Dreams, and Reflection. And at the end of that book, I knew that I wanted to be in the Jungenstream because I felt that it really spoke. It, it really spoke to me. Um, what was it about Jung, Jung's work? Because it's obviously his, it's his autobiography, well, one of his autobiographies, oh, right? Yeah. And he talks yeah. about spending time with indigenous peoples in Uganda and other places, and he has this kind of appreciation cross-culturally, obviously, yeah. of, and he's looking for symbols, right? The Absolutely. symbols that Absolutely. work across cultures and as evidence of the collective unconscious of archetypes and so on. I mean, what was it that spoke to you about his work so, so deeply? There was, uh, well, his, uh, his theory, you know, of the archetypes, uh, the archetypes being uh, universal and that are images, you know, in every culture. There was also the idea of the collective unconscious and the personal unconscious which I felt was um, very relevant, you know, to me, which I felt that I did not find in Freud theory. And Freud theory, you know, if I can summarize it, you know, from what I'd come encounter at the time, was very much built around sexuality. Yeah. You know, sexuality, you know, sort of the, um, his theory of development, but seen through the lens of sexuality which for me didn't really answer the question of the witchcraft that I was so curious Yeah, about. this is it, this, this, yeah. this kind of, this, this is twin, twin forces driving you, aren't there? There's the child, understanding the childhood trauma and how that affects later life, but also this kind of thought, this mysterious, uh, invisible, all-pervasive uh, thought, like having a framework to kind of make sense of that. And he, Jung at least gave you this, this sort of sketch of that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think what I also appreciated in reading uh, Jung's biography was the fact that he had been to other cultures. Yeah. You know, to experience, you know, those cultures. Even though, even though, you know, he's, he was also a man of his time and, you know, some of his writing has been couched, you know, as racist. But for me, what's important is to not throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. You know, there's some very important ideas, you know, in Jungian theory that I felt, you know, I could use, of course, not as a blueprint, but I could use or could give me a bit of an understanding about my own culture and things within my own culture mm. that I had not been able to understand or I wanted to make well, sense. Well, I'd love to ask more about that and how you've taken that forward, because obviously you've spent a lot of time working with young people, with families, parents, and others in the UK. But then more recently, you went back to Africa. You worked in Nigeria, supporting psychosocial teams, working with, as we mentioned, escaped abductees, essentially, from Boko Haram, the militants in Nigeria, and people affected by that insurgency, but also in other parts of Africa, in other, uh, other circumstances what do you think we can learn from from your journey of fusing the kind of very i mean really in some ways like 
it's quite, you know, quite remarkable way to have, you know, Congolese therapists sitting here talking about Freud, Jung, you know, you, you couldn't really have a more, more kind of wider spectrum of experience than that, you know, Absolutely. you know, given the sort of musty sort of old white men kind of heritage of that school of uh, the, 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 the sort of that those origins of Western psychotherapy and you kind of come in with this totally different energy and experience, but, and, but you've mashed them together, you fuse them together. What comes out of that? What do you take back when you go back to Africa where, where there is so much trauma and often, as you said, I, I mean, you know, we've talked about some of the limitations of the kind of culture around trauma, but there's also resources to draw on as well. So I'm really curious about how we take this forward. What can we, what should we be thinking about as we look at the kind of, I mean, how do we support other, you know, how do we, how, how are you supporting people working in Africa to, to kind of level up their work, to, to scale, to reach more people, to address this huge need for, yeah. for healing and, 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 and interrupting this transmission of trauma through the generations, which we, you, you talked about in Mobutu's Congo and, and what, which we're seeing unfolding even now. So yeah. Yeah. a big question, but let's, let's throw it forward. Absolutely. I mean, where can I begin answering that question? I'll tell you what comes really, what, what strongly comes to my mind is relationship. Again, mm. we're back to relationship. Um, my own relationship with my analyst, because, you know, in answering the question, I'm just going to go back a little bit to also flag up that part of my training as a child psychotherapist here in the UK is to do one's own analysis, you know, to really uh, sort of, yeah, a personal journey of understanding how, you know, your, your own childhood and how that has affected, you know, me and my functioning. And, uh, and that is very much done as part of a, you know, an intimate relationship, you know, with my therapist. Um, and that for me and my therapist, you know, is a white male. Um, and what he, what, what he, what was very important for me was, you know, to have this relationship where I could bring the whole of myself and to know that within that space, I could experience and allow all the different aspects of my personality to unfold. And it was also an opportunity to work sort of with the different culture you know, me being an African woman and my therapist being a, you know, a white male therapist, you know, and how does the history that we bring, you know, personally, mm. but also collectively, how does that unfold in that space and what do we do with it? Well, quite. Yeah. I mean, and th this is, I suppose, what's coming to me as you're talking is I, I've been thinking a lot in the last few years about obviously mental health, but much more in a Western context, primarily British context. Yeah. And, you know, we read the headlines about soaring rates of depression and anxiety. Um, we see it all around us. I've suffered from depression. And, and a lot of my impulse is to look beyond the therapy room and into a more collective sort of process of the sort that might be more I mean, almost more familiar from an African kind of, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, 
you were talking earlier about how, you know, there's no Lingala word for therapist, but there are collective rituals and collective experiences that are containing for people. I've, I've been very much seeking those experiences. You know, we talked about on another show about the sweat lodge ceremony, Native American sweat lodge ceremony. And I attend from time to time a sweat lodge ceremony in Oxfordshire, which comes down from a uh, Canadian tradition that was brought to the your Blackfoot tradition from Canada that was brought to the UK. And for me, that collective experience of sharing in a collective group, in a safe group container, whether it's at the sweat lodge or in other contexts, has been really kind of powerful for me. So it's kind of a paradox when I hear you coming from a culture where the kind of the collective almost comes first, you've, you've kind of gone the opposite direction to seek an in, a very individual experience. Yeah. Whereas I, coming from a culture where the individual comes first, has kind of gone in the opposite direction to look for a collective container. So it's fascinating to me the, 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 the paradox at work here. And maybe, maybe by playing with between those two approaches, we can find more in each, for each, each of us, or, you know, for each culture in a sense. Absolutely. I mean, my experience of the collective is that there are a lot of positive about the collective, but a collective can also be suffocating yeah. to the individual. Uh, can you talk about that in, in the context of your work in Africa? Because I've seen, I mean, I've sort of, I've read critiques in a way of, of, of attempts to bring a very sort of Western model of trauma into an African context, and I'm I'm recalling them. I, I remember reading in Bessel van der Kolk's book that he talks about how he was in South Africa and seeing sort of drumming circles, mm -hmm. and how they were incredibly powerful as a kind of form of therapy, almost a form of physical movement, of community, of rhythm, of of of, sync, of, of kind of coherence in a group field that had real power. But then you hear about interventions where, you know, people turn up in Rwanda or mm -hmm. somewhere like Rwanda after the genocide and kind of offering one-on-one -on -one therapy that just seems yeah. completely misguided in that context. Yeah. And, and there's been kind of some quite powerful critiques written of those sort of approaches. So, so yeah. you're, you're right in the middle of all this because you've come from Africa, you've gone mm -hmm. to the, UK, the West and you've kind of brought the two you sort of embody both simultaneously so yes. i'd love to know more about what you're kind of running into when you go back to africa what what works and what doesn't in a way again um what works and that doesn't work i think what's important i mean i mean for me as a as a, as a therapist um what's very important again is it's a hold on to the idea of the relationship yeah and the relationship could be in relation to a one therapist, one teacher, one nurse, a parent. Yeah. But a relationship can also be in terms of others within a group. Yeah. And I'm very mindful not to come with a blueprint and say this is the blueprint and this is the one that works. Yeah. You know, I think it's very much it's important that it is fluid. Yeah. And to really assess okay what is the context. And also what's important for me you know, sort of is knowing okay in the UK context, our functions differently than in the Nigerian, you know, or in an African context, you know, where resources are limited. Mm. So what's important for me is to think about the resources. What resources are available that we can make use of? Yeah. 
necessarily what is the method that people need to apply that's a great distinction yeah absolutely so bearing in mind relationship is very important because we experience trauma in relationship and it is within relationship that we are going to heal yeah so that's very important and the other thing i mentioned you know sort of resource and um and where else was, was i going with that um yes well, Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so I was going to ask on the resource point. Yes. When you're in Nigeria, in Northeast Nigeria, arid desert. Yes. Boko Haram militants. Yes. Or insurgency. I mean, enormous problems. Do you find cultural resources that you can draw on and kind of amplify? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, we were talking about the individual and the collective. Yeah. One cultural resource I can think of is in lots of african cultures or societies you know you have the idea of a collective bath where when you know sort of say the children uh, who have been abducted come back in the in the communities of course there are a lot of there are mixed feelings you know understanding yeah. those, those there, children. yeah there's fear of them yes, and there's anger, anger. There's, but there's also guilt and grief i mean absolutely. i saw very similar in northern uganda where i was writing absolutely. about Lord's Resistance Army kidnapping children. Absolutely. The reintegration is a huge challenge. It's huge. Out. It's huge. So in, in some villages, you know, depending on, again, how it is facilitated, there might be a collective bath for those children returning. When you say ba bath, literally. Bath, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. But literally, you know, the, the, the community is going to come together. The children will be put in the middle or in whichever, you know, um, format it might be. It might be slightly different. But there will be clans. So it's a cleansing ritual. It's a purification ceremony. It's a purification yeah. ceremony. Yeah. 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 And then the idea might be that after that purification ceremony, the children are freed of the spirit of those that have killed or, or the harm that they've caused. On the collective level, I can see that that can be very helpful because, you know, it is facilitating at least an aspect of reintegrating those children in their communities. And if done well, and if all goes well, you know, that, you know, that's, you know, that is really positive. However, from what we also understand about trauma and how the psyche and how traumatic memories are stored and how the, the, the psyche uh, works, that cleansing might be enough for one child, but it might not be enough for another. For a child that is experiencing post-traumatic disorder, for example, say nightmares and everything after the, 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 the cleansing ritual, where clearly that child is going to need a bit more. Yeah, and, and, and this is where, I mean, a lot of what we've talked about in other episodes is about, in a sense, how trauma is in the body yeah. and, and how the physiological, the, the sort of, um, the, the body as a reflection of the psyche in a way, and, and, and the fact that working through the body can often be Yes. a really important part of of healing and i was thinking as you were talking of um that this ritual i was recalling i've seen those rituals done in northern uganda where there's a in northern uganda they have a choli community they have a there's a moment where you step on an egg or there, there's some and the egg has a rich very deep symbolism as they kind of return over the threshold and there has been a movement to restore these ceremonies and yet as you say ambiguity around it's all about doing them well because if they're done for the wrong reasons, they can actually be counterproductive. And, but I was also thinking of another, another amazing, a, a kind of 
another analogy, uh, sort of reflection of this in the Western culture, very, very deep Western culture, ancient Greece and the, the plays of ancient Greece. There's an amazing theater company called Theater of War set up by Brian Dorris, who's a US classicist and writer who created this theater company to put on scenes from Sophocles Ajax for returning soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan. And they put this play on in front of, I mean, I've seen it done in the UK where they've done it in front of a few hundred soldiers. Yeah but they've done it in football stadiums in the US with literally thousands of, of soldiers watching it. And it creates a moment where everybody can come together and sit with the reality of trauma and what they may have gone through and the, what they've gone through collectively. And it's not the kind of answer in the sense that, it, yes, it is healing, but, but often it's just a way to open the door for those people who suddenly realize I need to look deeper in myself. I need to do more. Work mm -hmm. on myself, Absolutely. and and then and then they can kind of provide that support. But obviously, you know, with far more limited resources in Africa, that that's going to be harder. So, Absolutely. but I, I love the idea of of ceremony and the collective coming together to kind of witness that we're not alone in our trauma. Because I think one of the one of the limitations in the West is that we we've sort of inherited this belief that, or this idea of ourselves as sort of atomized separate individuals. And if I've got a trauma, it's my trauma. I need to be fixed one-on-one, -on -one. but it's all, it's always part of a system as you've, as you've alluded to. And we're part of communities. We're part of societies and bringing more of that awareness back to the West, I think is really important as well. So, so I suppose I'd like to see you zigzag. I'm sort of thinking the next chapter is, you've you've come from africa into the west back to africa and then kind of bring that back to us over here in, in the uk in a kind of another layer another level maybe of the spiral perhaps I know, something even more integrated to use to use for say young people in the uk who are they may not have been abducted by boko haram but they've certainly suffered terrible deprivation and exclusion and you know, some of the kind of fear and suspicion that they've witnessed, that, you know, they, they encounter in their own neighborhoods. You know, there's so many, and there's so many parallels, mm. actually, that well, you yeah. can kind of continue to, to, to move back and forth across. Absolutely. And, and more and more, and, and I think there's, there's, there's always been, you know, there are more groups, you know, for young people. You know, I mean, here in the UK, it certainly is a... Um, a mod, uh, what's the word modality of treatment you know where you would have group you know group therapy or just you know group for young people to come together and and explore you know issues that they are facing you know because yes there is the group is you know the, the group is powerful the group can be healing but it could also be a hindrance yeah yeah and it's it's really it's getting that balance right and, and also for for each individual there will be a different period in our life there will be a priority uh, the, there, there will be times where we we'll, we need to prioritize you know sort of understanding our relationship to ourselves and also understanding and at a different time the task will be to understand our relationship to the group you know? well that's an ideal i think jumping off point for the sort of final part of what we were going to talk about, which is what's going on now collectively with Black Lives Matter, with racial 
justice and oppression, with the conversation about decolonization. I mean, you know, you're, you've, you, you straddle these worlds. What do you see when you watch, when you see it, what's going on now in say the US, but also it's also in the UK and other, other parts of the world, what do you think is going on? And, and where do you think we need to, what do you think, what, what do you think is going on? What are the resources we can mobilize to, to move to a better place? Wow, again, a really interesting question. I mean, for me, the way that I, I sort of look at the Black Lives Matter you know, movement is, when it all started, for me, the question that it brought up was very much, why now? Yeah. You know, um, George Floyd was not the first Black person that had been killed, but somehow, you know, there, there seemed to have been a huge, you know, uprise you know, at the time of, or, or that, that followed, you know, his, uh, his, his killing. So perhaps something about trying to understand why this happened at this particular moment, but it also happened at a time where the movement start where we are going through a pandemic, where essentially, you know, we, we feel completely out of control. We don't have control about what is happening. And um, there's so much uncertainty. And with that, there's also a lot of anger. And if we can really begin to unpack, you know, what the anger is really is about, the way that I made sense of, you know, I came to sort of understanding the movement as anger around inequalities, you know, inequality yeah. in terms of race, gender, and, 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 and also economic inequalities, you know, that is so part of the world that, you know, we now live in, we seem to have created, you know, this, this, um, you know, this, this, this world where there is so much dis disparity in how the resource, you know, is shared. Yeah. And understandably, you know, um, many people, many of us, you know, feel angry about it. But also another way that I have sort of made sense of is um, sort of through the, the lens or, or, or I've, I've used, you know, sort of this idea of the cultural complex, you know, to try mm. and make sense of And the cultural concept is very much a Jungian sort of, I mean, it sort of derives from Jungian ideas of the concept and the, the cultural concept is also um, an idea that's been uh, not defined, but um, uh, not created. I'm looking for the word, um, uh, the cultural complex. No, no, no. The, the cultural complex. No, that 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 began, or that um, that has originated from from Jungian. Yes. Uh, sort of um, uh, or authors, you know, that are also Jungian uh, therapists or Jungian um, or academics that follow sort of Jungian's um, teaching or ideas. So the cultural com uh, complex are basically. Um, experiences that are original perhaps to a particular group but at the same time that is at the heart of conflicts between different groups you know for example um africans will have their own complex in relation to colonization for example yeah and that also is that complex and and, and the european will have their own complex in relation to colonization and that 
cultural complex of these two different groups, you know, would also come into conflict at times. And we are seeing that also a bit with the Black Lives Matters. I don't really know much about America because, you know, I feel that American issues are slightly different and I haven't lived in America, I've, I've visited, so I'm a bit reticent, you know, to jump in. And at the same time, I also think that perhaps there is value in making a difference, in separating out, you know, Black Lives Matter in America and Black Lives Matter movement in England, because I think the issues are slightly different. What's your sense of, of the UK? What, 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 what do you feel is going on and, and where do you think we could, what do you think could come out of, where, of this current moment on, positively? What I'm really hoping that this movement in the UK and perhaps also in some way in America, but staying with the UK, is that it presents an opportunity, an opportunity to really begin a conversation about these complexes, you know, that we carry, you know, within our groups and within our race, you know, for black people, but also for white people. And, um, and to really engage with how do we feel, you know, what does those experiences, you know, bring up for us? I mean, for me as a black woman, the feeling that comes up for me, you know, you know when we talk about colonization is, you know, the, 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 the feeling of, of, uh, of shame. Shame that my people <laughs> were treated, you know, so brutally and, and, and so appallingly. But at the same time, I also remember, well, is it possible to also look at colonization from a slightly different angle, you know? Because to everything, there will be positive and negative. What can we draw from those experiences? And how do we use those past experiences to help us move forward, rather than getting stuck in what, you know, we had the conversation the other day, rather than getting stuck in acting out? You know, suddenly we are going to, get rid of all the statues, throw them in the river, and then so what? Well, well, yes, what, what, what next? Yeah. yeah, what next, you know? So for me, you know, I, 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 I really hope that, you know, um, the movement can be an opportunity, but to really begin to have the conversation that actually do matter and a conversation around inequality, especially around economic you know, inequality, that is still very much part of the world that we're living in. You talked about that shame that comes up. Yes. What about for white people? What are you, what are you, what are you hearing from, from white, white, white people, the colonizers yeah. in this? Yeah. Well, and, and I'm thinking back to your therapy sessions where you're sitting there, <laughs> offering your soul to white male therapists and what else is in the room and and i i'm just i mean this is a this feels like a a great way to bring it bring us to a kind of synthesis um yes, of yes. all of these of the of all of this kind of spiral of the collective and the individual and the cross cultures that we've been discussing what are you what are you hearing from from white people at the moment what do you think's coming up I mean, you, white person, you tell me better than, you know, than, than I can answer <laughs> <it>. <laughs> well, I Well, I mean, I, I feel a lot of fear. I mean, I feel, I feel, I feel kind of, I, my experience of the last few months has been, wow, there's something for me to look at here, which I haven't really looked at enough. How do I look at it in a way that feels right to me, but also acknowledging that won't feel right because there's a lot of stuff there that is pretty 
heavy <laughs> that needs to be looked at. So how do I go about that? I haven't, I, I, I'll be frank with you, I haven't found my, I haven't found a path through this yet that feels like I'm moving forward very far, sure. which is why I'm kind of curious to hear your response to that. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for kind of, I suppose I'm, I mean, I mean, if you read any of the books about, you know, white supremacy and so on, I'm not allowed to say, what should I do? Because that's just a sign that I don't know what I should do, which shows how racist I am. So I'm not going to ask that, but I am kind of curious to, to kind of hear your reflection on what you see coming up around you, because I feel there may be something valuable for me in that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've mentioned sort of my feeling of shame, you know, that come, that come up. You know, of course, there are other feelings that come up, but I think that is really the predominant feeling that comes up. And I, I yeah. do wonder whether for my fellow, you know, sort of white um, friends and colleagues and um, whether it's possible that the feeling of guilt is also what is turned up. Yeah. So now we're talking yeah. about shame and guilt, you know, in these two groups. And how do we then have conversation, you know, about, you know, those feelings and other feelings that also come, you know, around um, historical um, events, you know, that happen, that are still very much part of our psyche, you know, and, um, but at the same time, do those events still have to um, sort of hold us prisoners? Yeah. You know, or can we find a way of processing it so that, you know, we, and, and see where we get to? You know, with it. because we can't rewrite history. I think that's the other thing we have to, you know, to, to, to acknowledge. We cannot rewrite history. We can reassess it, but we also need to decide, okay, having reassessed it, where, where do we go from here? And, um, and that's, those are really, you know, that would be an area where I feel, you know, that's, you know, the Black Lives Matters in the, in the UK, perhaps also in America, is an opportunity, rather than it's just uh, bringing up feelings of fear, but that it also bring up really the you know the that facilitates that it facilitates you know having conversation and and also rather than us jumping on the idea of decolonizing the curric the curriculum and for me whenever I hear that I'm like hmm, I wonder what does that exactly mean you know how do you go about it now of course you know we owe it to our children to understand history to know about the history. But I also hope that our children, that we can also pass it on or teach our children to learn about or teach our children to um, engage with or to have conversation with themselves, you know, um, or what am, I, what am I wanting to say? To teach children more about their relationship with themselves and the relationship with the other or otherness, you know, in, in terms of gender, uh, race and sexuality and more, you know, it's, it's having those conversation and processing something that I feel, you know, is going to allow us, you know, to bring some change really, because well, change, change is needed, you know, we cannot deny it. And, um, and history, it's funny the way that sometimes, you know, event in history or something that history sort of comes up, you know, comes back. But the way that I choose to look at it, it comes back for a reason is probably because it has not been processed. So he comes yeah, back. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking of your own life and how these themes have been so infused in your own journey. Absolutely. And, but how wonderful to see you 
where you are now with so much wisdom, clarity, eloquence on these issues that you, you, I feel, I, I'm excited to see what's next for you as an individual personally, because I, I see you, I see you really stepping into bigger and bigger roles in, 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 in public roles in, in actually holding space for these conversations. I just think, I just think we need to see more of you on a <laughs> We need to see more, more of this work. You know, obviously the con we talked about the plans for that mental health conference in that's obviously been delayed. But I wonder whether you may find there's bigger opportunities closer to home in this in this current climate and what where we are now as a collective, what we're working with. I feel that you have such an important voice that love to see you. I, I just feel there. I feel. I feel we're on the verge of something. I don't know what it is. Something. Something okay. is going to emerge, but we'll see. And I hope we'll revisit this conversation in a year or six months. Very much see so. Where we see where we've got so. to. It's extraordinary. Yes. So, and it's so on a personal level, such a pleasure to reconnect at this level after after our first meeting years and years ago, and could never really have imagined that we'd be talking about these themes. No. And, <laughs> And addressing these questions in this way is such a such a privilege and a pleasure. So thank you, Angel. And Matt, uh, thank you. <laughs> Look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening. The Matthew Green podcast was produced by me, Tarn Rogers Johns, for Emerge. Emerge is a media platform and movement exploring the emerging new narratives of our time visit us at www.whatisemerging.com.